Today on The Black Goat, when should you care what other people think of you, if ever? We respond to a letter asking what it takes to be first author, and we don't talk about sips. Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava. With me are intrepid planetary explorer Alexa Tullett. Hi, Sanjay. And happy-go-lucky IKEA assembler Samin Vizier. <laughs> Hi, Sanjay. <laughs> so, someone asked me recently, because I, the like the only part of this show that's actually written out is the introduction, and someone was like, "Do you actually record that new every time, or do you do you just uh, have mm. like a canned recording that you edit in?" So I decided I, I needed to mix it up. Well, it's funny uh, that you called me an I- IKEA assembler because I've been known to leave IKEA furniture in its box for seven years to avoid <laughs> assembling it. <laughs> Turns out it warps a little bit when you do that. Maybe maybe that's part of the happy go lucky. Yeah, right. like, well, when I feel like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So what was this mine is again? uh you were, uh, intrepid planetary explorer. Okay. Yeah, I like that. I like I like the word intrepid uh, mm. as a like an adjective for people. I feel like it's only I only ever hear it used about cub reporters. Um, so I thought I'd mix it up a little bit. Like, it seems like that's like a, like intrepid junior reporter, like is a, a like comic book cliche or yeah. something. I don't know. Maybe I'll change Maybe my Twitter. You have like a, a description of yourself on Twitter, right? Yeah. Maybe I'll change yeah. it to that. <laughs> intrepid planetary explorer. Yeah. Cool. Uh, if I, if I can claim credit for your Twitter bio, I'll be pretty happy. Mm-hmm. I'll give that to you. All right. So, so this is uh, we're recording this um, uh, uh, less than a week after we were all at SIPS, and for people listening who don't know, SIPS stands for the Society for the Improvement of Psychological Science, Um, and we actually decided at SIPS or, or going into SIPS that it would be fun to record interviews with people at SIPS. And find out about their experiences with SIPs, with the, the with open science, other things. Um, and so we decided not to talk too much today about SIPs uh, because we're going to do an upcoming episode, and we'll kind of talk about our own experiences there um, and sort of some of the history of it, uh, as well as uh, have some of those interviews. Um, so, so we're not going to go on at length, but I guess Samina and Alexa, if you if you could think of one highlight of your SIPs experience, just to tease what's coming up, what what would it be? For me, oh, what man. stands out about SIPs is that it's the only place where I'd rather talk to people I don't know than to, to my own friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's definitely like most most conferences. I'm like, where are my friends? I need to talk to them. Like, I don't have enough energy or whatever to talk to new people. And then SIPs, it's like my friends are like tagging along with me. It's so annoying because I want to go talk to those new people, and like I never have that feeling. What? <laughs> <laughs> this is this is news to me now. I'm, I'm, you, yeah, I now feel I like I thought you wanted to you guys. But... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, yeah. So we, I asked that question to some of the people in our interviews, and people always pause for a long time after you ask them, like, "What's your most memorable sips moment?" or "What's the one thing that stands out to you?" Um, and then I feel bad for asking people that, and now I'm like, the tables are turned, and now I have to <laughs> say mine. Um, I think. 
for me, the feeling of being at SIPS is unlike any other conference and that it feels like a little bit like being at summer camp, which I think is like kind of what you're saying, Samin. Like you are sort of forced into these situations where um, you're going to have to interact with people that you don't know and you're going to have to work on things together and you're going to have to say your opinion on something where you feel like you're not an expert and stuff like that. And, um, and yeah, it's sort of like a forced social interaction that ends up being really rewarding, but that I think me and a lot of uh, the people that I've talked to probably like would be nervous to sign up for if we really knew what we were getting into. So, um, so I really like that about Sips. I just sort of like close my eyes and I'm like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to have fun. I'm going to ignore the fact that I don't know what an unconference is and what a hackathon <laughs> is and like it'll all work out. Yeah. It's like a one big I trust would, fall. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would, I would say for me, like an exciting thing is just seeing all the stuff come out of it that I wasn't expecting and seeing people doing stuff that they weren't expecting. So like one of the, one of the really gratifying things for me is talking to people who are there for the first time and who are, even on the fence about whether they should come, but they, a friend told them, no, no, come, or, or they kind of decided to take the leap. And they thought they would be hanging back, and they ended up, like, working on, and in some cases even leading a really cool project, and going from, like, feeling like I'm not going to have anything to contribute to feeling really sort of energized and even empowered to, to change things. That was really fun to watch. And I don't want to get into specific stuff because I'll end up going on and on. But I think one thing that's I'll say from last year that's been really fun to watch is study swap. Mm -hmm. This like a group of people just got together and a lot of them themselves were from, you know, smaller institutions. They don't have large subject pools or they want to work with diverse populations or other kinds of things and coming up with an exchange for researchers to meet each other. And it went from like, this like a bunch of people brainstorming to a year later there's a, a site for it and there's a special issue or I guess we're supposed to call them a nexus a nexus at Calabra where people are going to be able to do collaborative studies and and get them approved as registered reports and so just seeing how much and SciArchive is another example of that right SciArchive kind of you know, started off. Sorry. Okay. I'm supposed to <laughs> we're not supposed to talk about it anyway. Yeah, it's just been it's been cool seeing like people just come in with like I don't even know what this is about to like doing really cool stuff yeah okay for me so I went from SIPS to APA for a day before flying back home and it was really like a jolt to the system to go from SIPS where you know I think a lot of the people taking the lead on things and leading projects were relatively junior scholars and then at APA I was on a panel on replicability with two other people and so we started the panel by each introducing ourselves and the person who went before me introduced himself and he started by saying that his qualification for being on this panel is that he's been doing this for 50 years and blah 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 blah. and I remember thinking holy shit like I haven't been alive for 50 years so if that's your (laughs) if that's what it takes to be qualified then I should just walk off this stage right now but it just like was so refreshingly like I don't know shocking which is so nice to like be shocked by that right like that's probably how most things are in the world but to be able to be away from that for four days straight so that when I like re-encounter it it's like wait that's not okay (laughs) like that that's not the way it should be was kind of a nice feeling to be like so yeah surprised by that Mm -hmm. yeah 
Yeah, it was fun there. You know, like uh, uh, Morton Gernsbacher was at SIPS and she was going to APA and she was kind of joking that uh, she's like, I, I feel, I, you know, I, I feel like the oldest person at SIPS and then I'm going to go to APA and it's, yeah. that's not how I'm going to feel, <laughs> uh, um, which, uh, yeah, which was funny. Um, are you, Samin, do you want to talk a little bit about the thing you did at APA? Like, how, how was it? It was really interesting. So, so one was a symposium and that was nice and fine, but it was like early in the morning and very few people were there. And then the other one was a panel on applicability. And so it was me and two other people plus two moderators. And I think out of the three panelists, I was the only one that was clearly whatever pro replicability to oversimplify. And it was a two hour panel. So it was like a really fascinating uh, exchange where I was trying to like, to not be a dick as we've talked about in the past, but also to kind of challenge <laughs> these people on the stage with me. And actually I think I can say this on the air. I don't know. We'll see. We, we might edit this out later, but the, the highlight for me maybe of like my whole year so far, I don't know was, so there was this old guy on the panel with me who has been doing this for 50 years and blah, blah. And a lot of the debate ended up being me versus him kind of going at it in a very, I think friendly way. Like I think we both really liked each other and really like really enjoyed the debate. Um, and afterwards, when I walked out of the room, this woman came up to me and she said, I just have to tell you, like, you were the best one up there. It was so great that your arguments were so good. And I'm the other guy's wife. <laughs> <laughs> so that was oh, like <laughs> maybe the biggest compliment I've ever gotten. Um, and I think there's uh. almost zero chance that he'll listen to our podcast. So maybe we can leave that in. I don't know. Um, yeah, that was that was I mean, it was also really fun. That's oh. true, but I think she might be okay with it. Um, but I think it was a really, for me, the interesting experience was I was up there and I figured out really quickly that I was, you know, by far the outlier in terms of my views on these issues, but that I was going to be up there for two hours and I was going to have to make it go smoothly. I want to get along with the co-panelists and I want the audience to not think I'm a jerk. So it was a really interesting experience of like trying to kind of win them over, establish my credibility, make sure that I'm not like saying things that are making people stop listening and then slowly kind of build up the case and try to shoot down their arguments, but in a, I don't know, more constructive way. It was really fascinating for me to see if I had the skills to do that. I've been talking about these issues for years and years. I feel like I've built up those skills and this was like a really interesting test of that. I think yeah. there's a video of it, so maybe they'll put it online and we'll see what other, I, have, I don't know how successful I was at it, except maybe the fact that this guy's wife thought I was successful is a good sign but um yeah. I would be curious to, to know what other people thought I've had um so I think that's one sort of a good reason why it's important to continue to go to conferences where you don't feel as sort of like comfortable as you do at SIPS um so I've had we sort of touched on this a little bit when we talked about like having friends outside of academia and stuff like that um, but I've had discussions with people who, you know, are not in psychology or not in academia or whatever. Um, and sometimes I'm like shocked by the like kinds of cases that I need to make and just for them to like, you know, just to like sort of like justify the existence of like even empirical science, for instance, like right now, one of my friends, we like get into arguments about whether psychology is worthwhile. And I think her basic argument is like, I don't care. I don't believe in empiricism. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it's like really, a really good practice to take, um, like take those counter arguments seriously or take those questions seriously and think like, can mm. you really 
like rebut those arguments yeah. effectively because yeah. you're, you're so used to everybody you know accepting those and like taking those as like things that we all take as premises basically so yeah it's a good way for me yeah. to to gauge whether i really understand something if i can explain it to somebody who doesn't even agree with like the basic right. premise of it um and so yeah it was really fun for me to see if i could do it you know live on the spot in a panel mm-hmm. yeah yeah and i mean i think the you know the the fact that this guy's wife you know made that comment joke you know to you it wasn't uh, a joke Sandy. A joke. she was totally serious <laughs> sarcastic comment. I, no i mean i think it, it it probably reinforces your impression that like you you know you can respect and even like someone you disagree with mm-hmm. and you know i i doubt like even if she agreed with you but thought you were being mean mm-hmm. or abrasive mm-hmm. or a jerk about it i'm sure she wouldn't have said that mm-hmm. um and it was probably more a sign of like you know how you and well or or also a sign of how you engaged and and it sounds like how he engaged as well that like you know and that's that's i think that's great to see because then you can you know if you're going to be up there for two hours you can get into some really deep stuff but if you're just yelling at each other yeah that's not you know it's going to curtail the substance yeah i wish we did more of this to be honest i wish like at every big conference there was like a debate between people with very very different views with enough time Mm -hmm. to really get into it and like some ground rules about yeah like about yeah being polite and stuff like that but Mm -hmm. i think we made for me i feel like we made a ton of progress on like where we disagree and what the assumptions are i do have to say sometimes the (laughs) i remember years ago i was at a uh uh, um, an emotion pre-conference uh, where there was a debate, uh, and um, I won't I won't name the people. Although anyone who's familiar with the field of emotion can probably guess who the people were, but there there were some uh, uh, I think slightly snarky exchanges that were especially going in one direction that were. Uh, as an audience member, very kind of amusing to watch. I don't know that the the debate like uh, changed anyone's mind in it, but uh, yeah, that can be entertaining too. But I think so. Know, yeah, that so Sandra wants the same thing as me, except with no ground rules. <laughs> yeah, <right>. yeah. <laughs> well, I think what was fun about this debate is we did like very bluntly disagree with each other and like kind of tease each other, but there was this like basis of mutual respect. I think that we built up in the first half. That, that allowed that to happen and without it feeling, yeah, like tense or something. Mm-hmm. But Yeah. Well, and that's, that's kind of used to me. Like you've, you've said that, I think you've even said that on the podcast before that for you, like an important part of friendship is like your close friendships is being able to disagree and be disagreed with. Yeah. And, yeah. And I take so it as a huge compliment if yeah. someone tells me to my face that they think I'm wrong, you know, assuming that I, there's a, so it's established that it's, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and also if the, you uh, it's important that they tag along with you accept it yeah right, right. <laughs> I, I really and now i'm like replaying back and i'm like thinking of all the times i like you know went and found you and i'm like oh shit should i have just when you were like, walking her, with her, her go. Just walking faster yeah, right. i know i know i just thought she wanted to get to dinner more quickly she was trying to shake <laughs> no. me <laughs> no i always like hanging out uh, with you guys it's just fascinating like, to really me that tired. there's even so, there's even like times when there's like remotely the equal uh, I'm remote, I'm even close to equally attracted to talking to other people. That's what's like fascinating to me as an introvert sure, and sure. someone who's like who loves You're, talking to my friends. It's like fascinating yeah, keep, to me. Keep backtracking, Samin. Keep backtracking. What's that? <laughs> I said keep backtracking. 
I remember now, uh, like, there was one time on the last night when we were, like, deciding where to go for dinner, and we had already chosen a place, and then Samin was like, I'm going to go to a different place. And we were just like, okay, we'll come with you. Uh, <laughs> I don't remember that. Yeah. All right. Well, how about uh, how about we read our letter? Because I think uh, I, 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 I think I, when I saw this one come in, I thought, oh, that's a cool one. And, and Alexa, I think you independently, you were the one that like put it on the thing and, and it was like, cool. So let's, should we do that? Yeah. So one thing that um, I like about this letter and then maybe Sanjay does too, is that it's like a really like specific instance of a dilemma that somebody has or a conflict that somebody has. Um, yeah. So specific that I've actually so changed the uh, letter a little bit to um, exclude some of the details that might sort of reveal who's being talked about. Um, So it's a slightly modified version of this letter. Um, So here we go. Dear the Black Goat, a recently published paper was first authored by a graduate student in my department. Uh, This graduate student hasn't yet started her second year in our program. The paper was sent out shortly after the student arrived here. The acknowledgments make clear that the study was conceived of before the student arrived by the second author who had left the program a few years earlier, and that the student did not do any of the data analysis. She drafted the manuscript. I'm sure she can't have drafted the results at the time of submission. I know because I teach the first-year grad stats sequence. And then it was revised by others. I think it's uncontroversial that this work constitutes authorship, but does it constitute first author status? I understand the need to position one's grad students competitively on the job market, but given that search committees may use authorship, especially first author status, as a proxy for contribution... We can't always read through all of the contributions for every paper if the contributions are even available. Should first authorship be given for this kind of work? Kindly, Anonymous. So I thought when, yeah, when that came in, I think what was interesting to me about it was that it, a couple of things sort of stood out. One is, you know, the the questions of what constitutes authorship are always kind of important to discuss. And, and this is sort of first authorship is kind of elevating. And we don't necessarily talk about first authorship as much as we talk about authorship, period. And second, this, I think, lurking in the background, almost explicit or fairly explicit, is, you know, concern about gaming the system. And that's definitely something that a lot of people are concerned about and should be concerned about. So, th- So the two kind of the, the intersection of those things uh, to me was really interesting about yeah. this. I mean, another thing, maybe this is a third thing or overlaps with those other things too, um, is the idea of sort of like your responsibility to your grad students being um, like something that can end up excusing bad behavior sometimes. So I hear people talk about this a lot when they talk about like their hesitance to change their research practices even though they know that maybe like some of their research practices are not very defensible and then one of the things that comes up for better or for worse one of the things that comes up is okay well am I going to is this going to have negative consequences for my graduate students if I start sort of like doing things the right way and maybe as a result like sort of slowing down the rate of publication and I think there's sort of a parallel in you know the non-academic world or the, the broader world when, when it comes to people's kids, right? Like we have to be ethical and make the right decisions when it comes to ourselves. But then when it comes to like our kids, it's like, okay, whatever's best for them, regardless of what's like more broadly ethical, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, so on the authorship issue, there's a, a phrase and I don't know if it originated here. I came across this phrase on Mike Frank's website because he's kind of made a lot of his lab manual open and I was poking around one day and, and he has, he did a very good thing, which is like to find in his lab manual how 
authorship's going to be thought of in his lab. And, and the phrase was sustained intellectual contribution, right? So, so authorship is, and I, I like that because the two parts, I think, really, for me, just with authorship, period, um, not getting to first yet, it's sort of the, the, a lot of the gray zone cases can be thought of with one of those things. So sometimes there's an intellectual contribution, but it's not sustained. And I, I've seen this happen where like somebody throws an idea around at a lab meeting. It may be a really good idea. It ends up making its way into the paper. Um, but it, it, you know, it, <clears throat> it's sort of ambiguous. And I'm like, well, I, you know, at least for me, like just tossing ideas around at a lab meeting doesn't mean anybody who says something that makes its way into the paper gets to be an author, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's one thing. And then the the intellectual part is like sometimes people make a sustained contribution, um, but it's not intellectual. You know, you you might have been and and again this is sort of borderline, but if you were the you know the project archivist or or something like that, or a technician, um and I, I want to be careful because sometimes those roles actually are super important intellectually, but but not always. And so um anyway, yeah. So so then th- you know to me First authorship, you know, the canonical case of first authorship is that you've, you know, it was your idea and you were with the project all the way through. And this sounds like a case where that mm-hmm. is true of nobody, mm-hmm. right? They're, they're, right? That's why this is an ambiguous case, because the canonical case is like, it was your idea, intellectual contribution, you were with it the whole way through, sustained, you were kind of leading the charge, running everything. And so then if nobody's in that role, who, you know, who comes closest. And yeah, I guess for me, like, the sustained part isn't just about absolute amount of time. For for me, at least, like, seeing something through to the finish line gets extra weight in sustained, right? Like, and I, I've certainly, in running a lab and in sort of being parts of collaborations, the, you know... um sort of starting an idea and then if somebody's interests change or they change fields or something like that, all that's totally okay. But to me that, you know, uh, in very often at least puts up for question, you know, should that person still be first author? Um, because I do, I put a lot of priority on sort of carrying things over that last mile. And often a lot of the really hard work is at the end, actually like nailing down all the details and everything. Don't know this, if that's true of this specific case, but that's often true. So that was something that to me made me kind of think like, yeah, I might be okay with this. Um, but yeah, I don't know what you guys thought. I feel like I should acknowledge that I'm a huge hypocrite if I say anything critical because I'm one of 72 <laughs> authors on a paper that we agreed we would not talk about. Um, so like what constitutes authorship, I think is a really tricky question that I, and I have sometimes violated my own principles about that. Like Alexa was describing about, you know, uh, that sometimes we say we, I know I should do X, but I'm not because of practical reasons or whatever, because we're not perfect and we're hypocrites. Um, so I want to acknowledge that. Um, but that said, <laughs> but I just, can I just jump in and say, like, I think those are, those are guidelines. Those are not rules, right? right? right. Even the sustained intellectual contribution, I can definitely think of edge cases or not even super edge cases, but cases where I would go beyond that. So, so I mm-hmm. think that's more like a, a sort of guidepost. And I think there are all kinds of good reasons why, you know, you know, why in specific cases you might go outside. Of it. Anyway, sorry, yeah. go on. But I guess I thought, this case, I wouldn't have thought this was really that complicated of a case. It seems fine to me 
to give first authorship to someone who comes in later on if they do the bulk of the work from there and the person who did the bulk of the work before that doesn't want to keep doing it and is okay with not being first author so yeah like you said there's no one who obviously should have been first author so in that case it seems okay to me to say okay well whoever's going to end up being first author is going to not have done some of the things that in the prototypical case of first author does. Mm -hmm. And another thing I would add to the sustained intellectual contribution, which again, there are many, many exceptions to this, but I think of the first author often is the person with whom the buck stops, right? So when there's a disagreement about how to frame the paper or X, Y, or Z, I like to try to give the first author the final say on that. If that means some people drop off as authors that, you know, that happens. But that's also very tricky when there's an advisor and a grad student on the paper. And, and that's something I've navigated, you know, every week I feel like I have discussions with my grad students where I'm like, I really feel like the paper should go in this direction, but you're the first author. So like, you know, I'll let you have the final say, but I, w- I might like ask you to have many, many conversations with me about this. So I'm sure that you've really considered all the different angles on it. And then sometimes I'm sure I haven't let the first author or grad student have the final say. Um, I try to minimize instances of that, but there have been times where I'm like, really feel strongly about something and I might put my foot down, which I think is ethically ambiguous. Mm -hmm. Um, So I guess I think these things are like super complicated ethically. And I, I wouldn't have thought this was a case where like, obviously some, some ethical principle is violated. Mm -hmm. I do think that, you know, what you said, Sanjay, about it not being clear who the first author should be in this case. And, you know, we can't necessarily use the typical heuristic that we use. um, Does, yeah, have implications for then how the work is interpreted, which I think the letter writer is, it's one of the letter writer's concerns. Um, so I do think that when we read a paper, we often assume that whoever is the first author is sort of like, like the brains behind the idea or something like that. And that's not always true. Um, and so, yeah, you know, there I personally are think like, ideas are cheap. So that's not the most important thing to me. But yeah, I, I half agree with that. Um but I think I think to me the 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 big the big picture broad brushstrokes ideas often are cheap and the intellectual work is the fine details in in implementation in, in the trenches and that that is you know going back to what I said earlier that's often a lot of that work gets done at the end when you're like trying to make the you know the the actual paper internally coherent and make sense and all that it's like you started with this grand idea. Right. Yeah, and so so it's hard to know from the outside, but that's that's totally a thing that I could imagine happening. That like maybe the the person who ended up as first author didn't have the big grand idea, but that doesn't mean that they didn't do a lot of important intellectual work. Yeah, and I think this is also maybe this is not a very satisfying answer, but this is part of why we look at multiple publications when we make decisions about like hiring or promotion or things like that. Is because sure. we know there might be the occasional publication where someone gets way more credit than they deserve or way less credit than they deserve. Mm-hmm. I mean. I yeah I think this is okay to say I don't know like when I was in grad school my advisor didn't have tenure yet and so at one point we had an agreement we were basically working so closely on our papers together the papers where we were the driving force behind it that it was very hard to say who was you know who was the driving force we it was a very collaborative experience so we agreed that we would alternate first authorship on those papers where we both contributed equally and so I think if you average over the papers, that's an accurate representation of my contribution. For any given paper, I might get more or less credit than I deserve, depending on which way the coin flip went on that paper. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and I mean, obviously that's not a satisfying answer because science doesn't care about the aggregate, right? People want might want to know, well, for this particular paper, who did 
what and so I think I, I was I was about to make a very nerdy joke about frequentist versus right, Bayesian right, right. Long authorship, error but anyway. rates, yeah. <laughs> but I think that the new things like that plus one and other journals are doing, where you state in the manuscript who contributed what, that's helpful for that, right? So then you could be more explicit about, well, really the first and second author, or first and last author contributed pretty much equally, but we had to pick somebody for each role. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I and yeah, I mean, I feel like because it, nobody fits the canonical model, this is kind of like yeah, and and that often is the case, and you just kind of have to do the best you can. I also, you know, for me, like thinking about this as is this gaming the system? Um, you know, if I think about like is this is this a sustainable way to game the system? It doesn't really seem like it is. Like th- this came up. It sounds like this mm-hmm. came up where somebody started this project and then left. And so the the PI had to give it to somebody, and that person got credit. But like you wouldn't you wouldn't systematically structure your lab to game the system in that way, because then you'd be try you'd need to get a bunch of people to do a bunch of work that they weren't getting credit for on a regular basis. And so to me, that like I worry more about system gaming when it's things that people can do sustainably, and and you know if this is just like to me, this just seems sort of like doing the best you can with a situation that isn't like the center of the prototype of of what authorship looks like to the extent that people can game the system in that way the people who can do it are the senior people so i'm not too worried about a grad student getting too much credit this one time because i think for every case like that there's a hundred cases of a faculty member putting themselves on a paper that they don't deserve authorship on yeah that's a good Mm -hmm. point that doesn't mean we shouldn't worry about it, but it, yeah, it's you can always think of something that you should worry about more than any given thing. So it's not yeah. a great argument, but mm-hmm. yeah, cool. Well, yeah, this is a super interesting letter, though, and and yeah, I think the like I said, the I think the first authorship issue, um, we don't talk about that as much as we talk about just authorship in general. And I I really like that this was, uh, yeah, give us a chance to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, cool. So if you're if you're listening and you want to write us a letter for us to answer on a podcast, uh, you can reach us at letters at the blackgoatpodcast dot com. Um, and uh, yeah, we like we really like sort of specific dilemmas. Uh, I mean, we'll <laughs> we'll answer anything, but mm-hmm. that that's one of the things that kind of makes it fun to dig into. Is is uh, and like Alexa said, there's there's even more detail that we kind of left out. Hopefully, we managed to make this at least not recognizable to someone who doesn't already know the situation and, and maybe not recognizable period. Um, I hope we did a good enough job at that. Um, cool. So one thing, uh, um, speaking of like contacting us, one of the things that's been kind of fun and cool to see, you know, we, we started this off, uh, not knowing what the hell we were doing or where this was going. Um, and, uh, um, it's been kind of fun, like, seeing people find us and interact with us and sort of hearing from people. And so uh, we wanted to take a moment in the uh, um, before we go on to our main topic and just thank people for, for listening and supporting us. Um, we want to give a special thank you and shout out to Will Gervais, who uh, brought us a bottle of bourbon at Sips, uh, which we are all going to drink together. 
uh, the next time we're in the same place at the same time, which is uh, going to be pretty soon. I was just uh, about to say, like, and... I didn't know that he bought us a bottle of bourbon, and I haven't drank you any of You do not follow bourbon. social media at all, or Twitter anyway. You're too busy with Snapchat. I even tweeted it. I tweeted it from our, our official podcast account. You, really? you missed it. Um, yeah, Will brought us like bourbon. I trying it's... so hard to pay attention to Twitter. It's a, it's a bourbon that apparently you can't even get outside of Kentucky. Um, um, and he like, yeah, anyway, so so I haven't opened it yet. Um, I promise not to drink it all by the time we're together. I brought it back. But yes, uh, so Will brought us a bottle of bourbon. Um, if, you, uh, if you're listening and you have a job, feel free to buy us bourbon. If you're a graduate student, we don't want you to buy us bourbon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but what <laughs> other things you can do. Uh, I feel like um, if too many people buy us bourbon, I'm going to have a conflict of interest and won't be able to handle anybody's papers. So maybe don't buy us too much bourbon. <laughs> okay. If you, if you buy me the yeah, bourbon, I, don't I, don't I, I will. I will. So. Yeah, right. You don't uh, we'll do like a masked review thing. <laughs> right. I won't let Samin know who gave yeah, us the bourbon. Yeah, just don't tell me I'll who just, the bourbon's uh, from. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that'll that'll be harder with you. Alexa doesn't follow the Twitter account, yeah, so right. I could just like tweet out the thank. It'll be hard to thank them without Samin <laughs> knowing. But um, yeah. Um, another cool thing that's been kind of cool is seeing people rating us on iTunes. Okay, so this is sort of a funny thing. I listen to a lot of podcasts, and people on podcasts always say rate us on iTunes. They don't say give us five stars on iTunes. Um, and I, I can't tell if that's like a, if they're trying not to be presumptuous or if there's an actual rule, but it's hilarious because they're always like, rate us on iTunes. And it's like, you can tell they want you to give them five stars. But anyway, so uh, I don't know how we're supposed to do this, but ra- uh, if you rate us on iTunes, it helps people hear about us. Um, and people, uh, it's been, it's cool. Like people have, have shown up on iTunes and, and rated uh, the podcast and posted comments about it. And that's really fun to see. Um, I didn't and know then, that. Uh, yeah. yeah, me neither. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you guys, you guys are totally ruining my listener. Thank you. So I didn't know people did that for us. Um, I, I listeners, I appreciate you. <laughs> my co-hosts uh, do not. Um, but yeah, it's cool, and and you know, people are telling friends, and and people just listening, and that's that's been really fun. And so we do. When you email us your letters and things like that, we try to at least respond with an acknowledgement. Sometimes it takes a while to sort of get through those, but uh, we really appreciate hearing from people uh, who email us, people who interact with us on Twitter, have all kinds of interesting comments about things we talk about. So thank you all who listen. And uh, um, and if you're, you're new to us or you haven't heard me say this a million times, um, you can subscribe to us on iTunes if that's not how you're already listening to us. Uh, you can find us on the web at theblackcoatpodcast.com. Uh, I already said the email letters at theblackcoatpodcast.com. We're on Twitter at blackcoatpod. And we're on Facebook, too, with something with Black Goat in the name. So just type that into the search bar and you'll find us. Yeah. So uh, so just to add to that a little bit, um, despite the fact that I don't follow social media and it's possible that I've missed <laughs> like direct messages to me, I don't know. I, um, but I... You know, there have been a few times where I've interacted with people in real life, as I sound like the oldest person on this podcast. <laughs> um, and I mean, it's it's really like hugely encouraging and and like flattering to hear when people say that they listen to the podcast, and it makes me like really excited that we're doing it. And I feel very grateful to that to people who tell me that. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I love it when people Sincerely. tell me that their dad listens to the podcast. I think that's awesome. <laughs> I have like a couple of friends who they don't listen to it themselves, but they're like, my dad or my husband listens to it. So hi, dads and husbands of our friends. <laughs> well, this is this is a great segue into our main topic, because uh, what we wanted to talk about for our main topic today is uh, what does it matter what people think of you? Uh, <laughs> and so uh, uh, we'll go from uh, people what people think of the podcast to talking about what does it matter what people think of you. So this, yeah, when we were sort of brainstorming topics today, this seemed like a really interesting and important one because it comes up in, I mean, it comes up in, in life a lot. It comes up in academia a lot, right, where we have all these, you know, kind of formal ways that, what other academic professionals think of you matters in your life and your career. Um, but uh, so, yeah, we, we wanted to just kind of talk today about like, what is the role of your, your reputation, your uh, meta perceptions, if you're a interpersonal perception nerd, like mm -hmm. me and Samin are, um, <laughs> you know, uh, um, how does that affect uh, your, you personally, professionally and all of that. So I suggested this topic because I've been thinking about this a lot. And actually, I've been thinking about it since uh, the end of my senior year of high school. So for a little bit of context, like in school, grade school and high school, I was a little bit oblivious. Like I, I like was a tomboy and I hated wearing jeans. So I didn't wear jeans because they were uncomfortable. And I had like short hair a lot. And I was the one at prom, like all the other girls ordered a salad and I ordered the huge bowl of soup with mussels and all this stuff. Like, and I went, I didn't realize like, but anyway, so at the end of high school, a friend of mine, Amy, whose birthday was yesterday. Happy birthday, Amy. Um, she wrote in my yearbook, like, I always admired you because you didn't care what people thought of you. And I remember, like, opening the yearbook <laughs> and reading that and being like, oh, fuck, what have people been thinking of me this whole time? Um, and so since then, I've thought about it a lot about, like, that I think sometimes my obliviousness protects me a lot because it's not that I don't care what people think of me. It's that it doesn't occur to me that people are going to judge me for things that are like a matter of comfort or preference or whatever. Side note, there was a point at which Samina asked me if she could buy like 20 versions of the same t-shirt and wear them every single day. And Brent Donnellan no. does that. Why is that not okay? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so yeah, like I think a lot about should I care more what people think of me? Like maybe I'm too oblivious or should I care less because sometimes I lose sleep at night over things that maybe I shouldn't worry about. Um, and I think everybody struggles with this to some extent. And I think you can go too far in either direction. And that's for me, like one of the biggest challenges in life and maybe especially in academia where like there are ways in which it really, really matters what people think of you, but there are also ways in which that can hold you back so much if you care too much what people think of you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah. maybe there's a sort of like a social psychologist thing to say, but I'm about to make a very unfalsifiable claim, which is that like, I think almost maybe every single behavior um, is motivated by either what people will think of us or what we think that they're going to think of us. Um, and so I think that it's almost it's of course, we do things because we care about what other people think of us. Um, but I still think that there are a lot of like important decisions to be made about um, how we sort of like navigate other people's impressions of us. Um, and one of the important uh, decisions I think we make is who we're going to care about. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's almost impossible to sort of like, you know, have our behavior be guided by these like internal principles that are totally independent of, you know, other people or what we've like learned growing up from society 
Um, but I think maybe we can sort of, to some degree, pick and choose between which ones we want to prioritize. Um, so to give sort of a, maybe like a concrete and somewhat academic example of that, um, I have had people ask me about sort of um, best ways to manage their time and things like that. And I think the only, um, the only habit that I ever, that ever worked well for me in terms of like getting me to like work hard and spend a lot of time on work was to spend time around people who also did that and like valued that and people who I cared what they thought of me. Um, because just having the like internal drive to like work hard and like, you know, um, sort of like push myself to do more, um, was less effective than like finding people who would like reward that behavior in me and would do the same thing as me. And then just sort of like doing that along with them. Yeah. I, th I think, uh, it's so interesting cause it can be such a double edged sword, right? Where caring what other people think about you when it's the wrong people or, or everybody or, or in the wrong situation can be so toxic. Right. But and, and I think that's often how kind of at a, a first level this gets talked about, um, you know, and I, I always sort of crack up when people declare that they don't care what people think of them yeah. because it's like, well, then why, why are you saying that? Like, you're, you're, you're clearly signaling this to somebody. If you really didn't care, you wouldn't bother to say it. But um, uh, but I think that's that's important to like what you're saying, Alexa, is, is really important that you can, if you, if you know that you do care and you know that you're going to care and you're not going to be able to escape it, then you can find people who will, will care about the things that you care about and will see you positively for doing the things that you want to do. And, and, you know, you can sort of like care about how you're seen by the people that will see the right things in you. Um, and you know, that, that will make that kind of a positive thing. Um, and I, yeah, I think, I think we sort of underestimate that, like you can be sort of thoughtful, uh, you know, given that you're not going to stop caring what other people think about you, you can, you can try to figure out ways to sort of make that constructive, um, uh, you know, to sort of make yourself better as a person or make yourself who you want to be. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, I think one of the really challenging things for me is like, I value a lot, you know, we talked earlier in this episode about like valuing critical feedback from your friends and stuff like that. And so like trying to figure out how open to leave yourself to feedback, but without leaving yourself so open that you're just constantly feeling bad about yourself or beating yourself right. up about things. And I remember um, when I first made, so my, my very first paper as an academic was in grad school. My first year project was looking at how, um, how people are perceived based on their personal websites. And so at the same time that I was studying this, like how do you come across on your personal website? I was making my own website. And so I thought, oh, I'll like have people fill out a questionnaire to see how they perceive me based on my website. And so on my first website, I had a page where you could rate me. And I thought about what to put on there. And I intentionally chose not to put things that I really cared about. Like I just didn't want to deal with seeing how people rated my intelligence or my mm -hmm. physical attractiveness or things like that. So I just put the big five because they're relatively neutral they're not there's nothing in the big five that it would kill me if people thought I was you know high or low on it and I but I made the mistake of having a comment box at the end which like definitely do not do that but so I've been learning like okay what can I handle what can I not handle when should I shut things out and when is that like defensive and you're not going to grow if you don't listen and actually this weekend I was reading um Al Franken's new book 
and he has it's kind of a memoir about like running for senate and stuff and he has a part where he in his first campaign he got a lot of attacks and he wrote to al gore and asked like how do you deal with the unpleasantness of like being this like kind of public figure and getting attacked and so on and i was really fascinated to read that because i feel like i'm more and more i mean nowhere near obviously i don't want to compare myself to al franken but it's like something that's coming up more and more for me about like how much responsibility do i have to really listen and i definitely want to be open to it but then what do you do when you feel like it's a lot and some of it might be unfair or something like that and al gore's response was one line it was suck it up (laughs) and Mm -hmm. i thought that was really good um there was another chapter that was called no complaining on the yacht which was about like how privileged you are to be in this position in the first place so so, like shut up and don't whine about it Uh um so that was really useful to me that there's also this middle ground between like completely ignoring the feedback but completely letting it in which is like Mm -hmm. you take it you suck it up you don't let it like completely destroy you but you also don't completely ignore it Mm-hmm. yeah you know one one thing that like you know think about this in a sort of academic context and and you know one of the ways like we're we're always formally evaluated by the people in our departments for for tenure for promotion for merit evaluations all that kind of stuff and it's interesting that like one of the things that i've sometimes struggled with is that there there are a lot of different ways to you know to be a scientist and and there's a, a there are good ways and and less good ways, but even within the good zone, there there's different ways. You you know you can make different choices. For example, about quantity quality trade offs or how much time you're going to spend on sort of all the different things you could be doing. And one of the things I've sometimes caught myself thinking is like the some of the people in my department who have a lot of stature, people I personally respect, but who are doing things a different way that I'm doing, and I find myself worrying like. That they're if I don't do things the way they're going to do, if I you know I I publish you know I don't publish the most papers in my department, but I put a lot of time and care, and I do you know big longitudinal studies and things like that, and I you know I'm like oh are they going to be worried or are they going to think poorly of me both for in a formal context like next time I'm up for an evaluation, but also just like interacting as colleagues um, if I'm not doing things the way they're doing. And, uh, that's, that's kind of, a. I found that that, that's, that's sort of the, when I, when I identify like the people who will like, if I step back from it and say, well, that's not how I want to be doing things. That's not my vision for it. And I don't, I don't disagree with how they've chosen to do things, but that's not my vision. And then if I refocus on the people that I think will value the way I've chosen to go about, go about doing it, it it's different, but that's. I don't know. It's really hard to avoid falling into that trap of like, this person does it this way. And I don't even know if they, in some cases, I don't think they actually think I'm not doing it a good way. It's just, you know, they would probably say the same thing about me that I say about them, which is like, we've chosen different ways of doing things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, so if, if Simeon is at one end of the continuum where she doesn't care at all what people think, <laughs> what? obviously I don't think it's true. Um, but I think, I think I probably um, err on the other side, and I think that there some of the consequences of that are things that you guys have touched on, like you know um, letting things get to you too much, or yeah, sort of like worrying about things that you know have no real answer and are just like differences in the way that you do things. Um, but another, I think, consequence of caring a lot what other people think is that you know sometimes there's a conflict between you know supporting. Uh, one person and tolerating like another person and things like that. And so um, I think that 
you know, if you want everyone to like you, you can't have everyone like you, right? Um, because sometimes other people treat each other badly and, you know, you need to be supportive of, of like the person that, you know, you want to be supportive of. So I think that there are times when you, if, yeah, if you care too much what other people think or you're too undiscriminating in, in who you care about, then you can sort of like end up selling out the people that, that you really care about. Um, so that's, that's something like I sort of try to work on a little bit is like really thinking about like what my priorities are and being willing to, um, I guess being willing to have some people dislike me for the sake of like what I think is important or people that I think are important. Um, but that's hard. Yeah. I think there are definitely cases where worrying about that is very, very justified and there are very serious consequences to offending somebody. But I think we Mm -hmm. most of the time overestimate how much damage someone can do to our career. First of all, how much, how likely they are to actually be upset that we disagreed with them. I think we overestimate that. Then we overestimate, even if they are upset, what impact that's going to have on us long term. Yeah, I think you're totally right. And I think, you know, I understand the risks involved and I'm not pushing for always saying exactly what you think and like, you know, ignoring the potential consequences. But I think that one nice thing about taking that risk and disagreeing with people that you respect is that often they'll surprise you, I think, and they'll say, oh, okay, well, I don't agree with you, but like they won't actually get mad at you or hold it against Mm -hmm. you or whatever. So giving people a chance to be okay with that disagreement is also kind of a sign of respect too. But mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's hard because especially for people in more vulnerable positions, the risk is very, very real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, this, this comes up a lot, you know, in the the conversation around critical discourse in science where, you know, people, I think people worry about being criticized. Is critical as... discourse in science the new thing for tone? Oh God, we we okay. <laughs> no, that, I told you that's that's on my leaderboard list of things we're that we're not going to talk about <laughs> on the podcast. Uh, <laughs> no, but uh, um, you know, I think people do worry that sort of criticism will kind of like sort of what what you know in the abstract most people would say is, or maybe not most people, but a lot of people would say is sort of good scientific critical discourse is going to sort of affect their reputation. Um, and, uh, but also, you know, like the, I don't know, like the, there are people in positions of power in the field who maybe like, I don't, in a sense of like being aligned with my values or whatever, like, I don't, you know, care in that sense what they think, but they, they are in positions as gatekeepers. They're in positions to decide who gets opportunities, to decide who gets awards, Mm -hmm. to decide who gets jobs. And that's a really tough thing sort of not knowing you know like maybe sometimes you know who those people are but you you know you don't necessarily trust their good faith to kind of not let you know not become petty or not Mm -hmm. become vindictive Mm -hmm. or something like that um and I don't know what to do about that because I I you know um yeah I want to not care about those people but I, you know, they can have real consequences. Yeah, but it's also possible that it could help. It could affect your reputation in the opposite way. In fact, there's one person at SIPS that I sought out specifically because I was really impressed by their willingness to stand up for what they believe in on online, on social media, even though they're mm-hmm. very relatively early, very very early career. Um, and so I sought them out to like 
tell them that I really appreciated the things that they said they were you know they were firm but like clear and like polite and everything on social media and Mm -hmm. that was a risk I'm and I suspect there are people who like this person less because of what they said but for me it was a positive and you know if it weren't if I our paths hadn't crossed at SIPS they would never have known that necessarily not that my Mm -hmm. opinion matters that much but like we don't think about that possibility that there are people who are like oh wow you have guts and you have a good argument even if I don't agree with you that's impressive which I think also speaks to the importance of um yeah like like thanking people when they stick their neck out in these kinds mm-hmm. of situations, especially if it's a situation where like then sticking their neck out is allows you to not have to, or benefits mm-hmm. you in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, because yeah, often people are making this sort of like decision between, you know, their own, I guess they're risking, uh, their own reputation in a certain context. Um, and hopefully for the benefit of other people. Right. And so mm-hmm. to, sort of remind them that they are benefiting other people is I think yeah there are also times I had a conversation actually with a friend yesterday we spoke for at least half an hour about whether or not she should speak out on a particular thing where she has some Mm -hmm. insider information and she's wondering whether to share it but it'll probably lead to a shit storm and she's got a lot of stuff going on in her life right now and she doesn't really want to be at the center of a, a storm and so I think it's also completely okay to care what other people think of you because you just don't have the resources right now to deal with like people thinking negative things about you even if it's totally unjustified even if you know in the long run you you know that people will come around to see that you didn't have those bad intentions or whatever Mm -hmm. i think we have to take care of ourselves too and if it's just too difficult to deal with all that stuff it's that's a very good reason not to speak out yeah yeah sure Mm -hmm. yeah i think it's i think it's important uh, you know one of the things in the in the background all this i think it's important to treat people in a way that recognizes that they are going to care right like the you know i think sometimes it's tempting to just say something just brush it off just you know uh um don't don't care what other people think um whether it's it's people you're who you're trying to be an ally to that's that's not necessarily the most supportive thing but it's you can understand where like someone might really you know think they're trying to be helpful about that saying just don't care what other people think or when it's someone you disagree with and they're concerned about it and and you're saying like you know don't uh um uh you know don't use that to to you know as an excuse or whatever and i think you know just recognizing that people are gonna care and so you know affirming people who've said things and and i think the you know what you said samin about affirming like thanking people you disagree with when they make a sort of uh an honest open argument and and they put the issue on the table is really important i i like you i really appreciate when people i disagree with just you know sort of come come out and put it in the open because then we can talk about Mm -hmm. it and this comes up a lot in you know there's some people i mean i'll say you know someone i uh um there was a paper a few years ago, Eli Finkel, Paul Eastwick, and Harry Reese uh, wrote about um, the evidentiary value movement, uh, um, which I'm not going to, I don't, I, people don't love that term, but I, I don't want to hang that on them. But it, I thought it was actually a, a great paper in that it moved the conversation forward. And I think I've told at least two of them this uh, um uh, personally, if not, if you guys are listening, I want you to know that, you know, like I, I actually agreed with quite a bit of what they said in there. But even in the parts that I disagreed with, I was so glad that they said it because I thought it really sort of moved everything forward. Um, 
and it it was like okay you, you know you you put your position down now we can we can talk about it and and that i mean that's just one example to me of like uh um you know when i've really appreciated and it, you know and it, and it also actually for me it highlighted like holy shit there's a lot of areas of agreement and and there's a lot of sort of common values and and common interests and so that was that that to me is like an example i've been thinking about recently um because it's come up in some various ways where i appreciated someone saying something because then we could talk about it mm-hmm. And so, so yeah, so I think like understanding, you know, I mean, I don't know if, you know, (laughs) I don't think Eli and Paul need to hear from me, but, you know, like understanding when, when someone who you might disagree with is making themselves vulnerable, I think that's one of the most important times to affirm what Mm -hmm. someone's doing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Should we care what students think in their student evaluations? Um, I don't know if we should, but I definitely do. And I think that, uh, I mean, the the obvious tricky thing about um, caring what your students think is that sometimes the things that make your students like you more are maybe, like, not the, the best things for them in the long run, you know? Um, like, I think, you know, my students would like me more if I gave them all A's. I think. <laughs> maybe that's not true. Maybe they would think that I was, like, a, you know, like a pushover and that their grade didn't mean anything, but... You know, I think I think that would work out pretty well um, for me. So, so yeah, I I care a lot about what my students think, and yeah, sometimes I find it tricky to sort of like balance what I think you know is their best long term interest with like you know sort of like making them happy immediately. Um, but I do think that's the right question to ask yourself is like you know. Um, there's a difference between like doing the thing that's going to be, make them happy right now. And the thing that's going to make them maybe like happy and more of a long term. And, you know, I, and I think with graduate students that, um, becomes that, that question becomes a lot weightier. Right. So that's something that I struggle with a lot. Like, um, sometimes I think that maybe the right thing for me to do in the long term is to like be a jerk to my graduate students, you know, and like, be like, you are not doing this right, or you need to work on this harder or whatever. Um, but I find those the conversations really, you know, sort of like difficult to have. And they're like very unpleasant in the moment. And I'm not totally convinced that that is the right way to get the, you know, the long term to have the long term benefit and stuff. And so I think student evaluations are a good case where it's actually, for me at least, pretty easy to separate out the comments that have some validity and I need to really listen to and comments where it's like, I need to ignore this because otherwise it's just going to make me feel bad and there's nothing I can learn from it. Mm-hmm. And luckily I don't get too many of the latter, but I see them on other, you know, people when people post the right. things, most egregious things from their evaluations, they're clearly like sexist comments or comments. Like, sometimes I'll get things like, you don't show enough videos. And I'm like, oh, would you like me to also bring popcorn to class? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so, some, you know, I need to be able to brush those off. Otherwise, I could get upset about that. Mm-hmm. But then the ones about the content of what I'm doing or like suggestions for how I can improve the clarity or things like that, I think I, it's important to be open to those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the the students thing highlights like something that's probably generally true of uh, sort of caring about what other people say, which is that it, you have to interpret it. You can't just take it at face value, mm-hmm. right? Because students, you know, 
aren't in the best position to comment on everything and they're like what their goals are aren't necessarily the ones that you want to be responsive to like they want you to be more entertaining and they don't care about you being informative um and i think you know what you mentioned about like sexism i mean that's another thing that sexism racism all other kinds of prejudice they there's been a very i think good and healthy and growing discussion about the role of that in student evaluations and kind of reasons that we when we take them at face value it can it can be a real problem um in sort of creating inequalities and i think that that's something we don't pay enough attention to in other parts of sort of formal professional evaluation where we have uh you know where where it's based on reputation like that you know um awards for example or you know tenure and promotion decisions or citations like you know everybody's like so gung-ho on h indexes and it's like you know you do realize that that's like a function of human judgments and <laughs> there's gonna you know and mm-hmm. and there's gonna be biases in those and and you're gonna be averaging together the signal in those and the you know which includes the biased signal um you know when when you pay too much attention to those things mm-hmm. i think maybe more generally um with the question of like how much you should care about what other people think of you my guess is that on average people maybe care too much. Um, and I say that for two reasons. One is, or maybe let that concern affect their behavior too much. One reason is, is that, I mean, if, if we can trust the spotlight effect, I don't know, has anybody done a (laughs) multi-site replication of the spotlight effect? I mean, I, I believe it. Um, and you know, I think that we generally assume that people care about the things that we do more than they actually do. Um, you know, on average. Um, and then the other thing is that like, in order to modify your behavior, in order to sort of cater to what other people think of you, you have to know, um, what they're going to like the most and what they're going to like less. And, um, I think sometimes we think that like saying things that are like controversial or, um, maybe, you know, taboo or not the norm, um, will be unpopular, but, I don't think it's always easy to anticipate what people's reaction to those things will be. And I think sometimes, you know, people are happy when people say things like that or, um, yeah, either because they don't have to say them then or because they realize that somebody else feels that way or whatever. So I, I guess I don't think that we're always really good at anticipating how people will respond. And so it's, it could be better to just sort of like say what we really think sometimes. So to put that into really nerdy psychometric language, and maybe this is a good note to end on. Um, <laughs> what other people think of you is a super, super noisy measure with a little bit of signal. And then your perception of what other people think of you is an even more <laughs> yeah. noisy measure with even less signal, but there is some yeah. signal there. So don't ignore it completely. Yeah, there we go. That's it. <laughs> Always good to end on a nerdy psychometric note. Uh, (laughs) Well, cool. Uh, So, yeah, I think that wraps us up for today. Uh, So thank you, everybody, for listening. And we will look forward to hearing from you all in the meantime. And uh, tune in next time. Bye.